All right. Let us kind of prepare our hearts and our minds for the message. We're going to pray, and then we are going to kind of dive in here. And I'm going to sit down because I guess that's what I do now. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us, uh, mind, uh, soul, heart, just through and through. Let your spirit fill this place. Let let your spirit fill us up. Let it it, uh, soften the hard places that that keep us from hearing your word. Let it open our ears and our eyes. Help us to, to know your son and to know forgiveness. I pray for your grace in our lives, your mercy on us. And I pray as I bring the word today that you would, uh, that you would uh, speak through me in a way that, that folks are able to understand and hear you and, and know what you have for them. Uh, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so this week's message, uh, kind of a tough one to uh, come up with a good illustration for. I, I will admit I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I have been stuck with that for days. Uh, and I ended up having to go back to an old video game. I tried to get TJ to uh, help me with this because he knows more about video games than, than I do. But uh, it, it ended up being a thing where I'm old and he's not, and that was the differentiating thing. Um, a million years ago, and for those of you guys who are children, gather around the fire, uh, once upon a time... When you played video games, they did not connect to the Internet. There were no pictures. There was no anything. They were really low-tech and unimpressive compared to today. Uh, One of the first games I ever played as a kid was a game called Zork, which is a term that means unfinished program. Uh, It was originally written by a handful of kids at MIT, and it was run on a computer that filled ten rooms in a building. Um... As you can imagine, it was not very advanced. Uh, Originally, 1977, I think they started writing it. Um, And it's very different from modern games, first off, because there's no pictures. You had to type things in. And so it was like reading a book where you could, like, sort of direct the story. And you would would tell the game to do certain things, and it would do them. Um, But it was before a thing called playtesting. Playtesting is something they do now to make sure that there's nothing stupid in the game that messes you up or or makes it so you can't win. Zork had like, I don't know, like 10 different things that if you made the wrong decision or you lost something or you did something in the wrong order, the game became completely unwinnable, but they didn't tell you. And it wasn't like a fast-moving thing. I mean, like, it was a lot of work to play through this whole game. And so, like, for example, the one, and I remember it's like 30, golly, 35 years ago. And I remember there was a thief character, and the thief would sometimes show up randomly. He was utterly random, and he would steal stuff from you out of your inventory. And it was annoying because, like, he would take stuff, and, like, he, he would just show up and disappear. And, like, there was no way to know it. But if you found the Fabergé egg, you had to have the thief steal it from you. And the thief had to open it so that you could get the treasure inside. And that was part of beating the game. And if you killed the thief before he robbed you, you couldn't win. Right? And you couldn't make him show up and steal something in particular. And so you would wander around in this stupid game waiting for the thief to show up. And then he'd show up and, like, attack you. And you'd have to fight him and try not to accidentally kill him. And I didn't know any of that. So, like, you'd play, and it was all a mystery. 
I eventually figured out through trial and error that he would steal the egg and open it. And I was like, well, that's significant. But like, I didn't realize if he didn't do that, you couldn't win. The game was unwinnable at that point. And they made three installments, and each installment has stuff like this, where if you made the wrong decision at the wrong point, there was no winning. And you could just play and play and play and play, and it would never end, and it was never possible to win. Um, the reason I'm starting with this, and I forgot to start my timer, so that was all a freebie. Uh, the, reason I am, the reason I'm starting with this is, check this out. <clears throat> this week we're going to kind of, it's the second week of Lent, and I, I, this isn't exactly a Lenten topic. But I, I want to talk about this because I had two different people bring it up with me this week. It was in the text last week, and it sort of unpacks something that shows us cool stuff about what Good Friday is and what Easter is. Um, <clears throat> we talked about the unforgivable sin, right? Like as Jesus says, well, anybody who does this, it just won't be forgiven. That's it. And it sort of feels like, I remember young, when I was young and I read about this, and I thought, wait a minute, there's a thing I can do wrong, and like, that's it? Like there ain't no coming back? And like, can you imagine? I mean, like, like it, it makes following Jesus into this like trick. Almost, where if you accidentally say something stupid or like in a moment of burst of anger, you know, something comes out of your mouth or ignorance or whatever, you could get to the end of the line and it's like, oh, you're forgiven by Jesus for everything. But remember when you were 12, that's the one. And so you can't win the game. And it it always bothered me when I was a kid. As I got older, I read about it and came to understand it. But like. It's something that since the beginning of the church, people have struggled with. Like the early church fathers really argued about this. And like John Bunyan, you all have heard this name. He wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Um, John Bunyan, when he, was, when he was young, he said something in the moment. Like he got upset and he said something. And he said that might have been blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he lived his life tormented by the possibility that he was going to go to hell because even though he followed Christ and actually went to prison for his faith and, you know, wrote one of the, like, most popular, well-known, best-selling Christian books of, like, all time, that, like, despite all of it, because he said something off the cuff, that was it. And, like, I'm going to say it again. I, two different people talked to me about this week, and that's why we're digging into it today. Oh, wow, those came up weird. Uh, can I get my next slide here? So a little background. Um, we were talking about Mark 3, and there's sort of this sandwich there, right? It is the gospel limiting sandwich where there's a group of people who are saying Jesus is insane. We need to tie him up. Uh, then there's a group of people saying he is possessed by the devil and he's doing all of the stuff he's doing by demonic force. And then, then his family shows up and the way it's worded in the text, the family shows up to limit him, to grab him and, and limit what he is doing. And like in each of those instances, it's a sandwich narrative. In each of those instances, it's something that's trying to limit him trying to stop him from doing the work that God has given him. Um, and so that's kind of the context here. And right in the middle, like I said, is that like, is this, this um, moment of these teachers of the law saying, oh, it's the devil. He's got the devil. Um, and so like to understand this is important. Like the casting out of demons was seen as a regular part, like not a regular part. It was seen as like, like a sign that the Messiah had come. And so these guys looked at Jesus, who was the Messiah, and their instant reaction is, oh, he's not on our team, he must be evil. 
not doing things our way, he must be evil. And so they said, well, he's performing miracles. How do you account for that? Evil spirit. And, like, they're so stuck that they can't see it any other way. And what happens is Jesus hits the brakes. He says, listen, everything will be forgiven. Any blasphemy, any anything. But, but there will be no forgiveness for blasphemy against the spirit. For, for um, this is an eternal sin is basically what he says. And we'll get into it in a second. So why is this a, the question of the unforgivable sin? Why is this a tricky question? First off, it's basically only talked about in this place, period. There are places where folks sometimes argue that it's referenced. It's probably not. Like, it's really, really limited in what we know in terms of how they talked about it. Very limited, not a whole lot of information. Um, it's sort, it sort of runs contrary to how we generally read the Scripture. And a lot of times people receive it and say, like, they read it and they're like, uh-oh, did I mess up? Did I drop the egg too early? Did I, you know, make a right turn instead of a left and now I'm, I can't win? Now I'm going to go to hell just because I made a dumb mistake. Maybe, you know, I thought something in my head. Am I going to, you know, am I, am I done now? Um, and it's kind of tricky to answer it because the answer fits into a larger theological idea. And we're going to get into this, right? Like, I'm going to try and do it simple, not overly hard, because uh, there's a lot to it. It's a huge discussion. Um, but we'll start by looking at the text, because if you're going to understand what he's talking about, you've got to look at the text. Everybody with me? All right. So it starts out, Jesus and the teachers of the law, they're talking. Uh, they knew the signs of the Messiah. They didn't care. They couldn't or would not see the truth. And so what's the initial statement that is made? And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, which we talked about that at length last week. We're not going to get into it again. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus' response in Matthew and Mark. So like they said, oh, devil, devil's in him. That's how he's doing stuff. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this account. Uh, we're only going to look at Matthew and Mark this morning because, again, we could do this. I could talk about this for two hours, and we're not going to do that. Um, the, the kingdom of God has arrived. Like Jesus points out, like, hey, the kingdom of God is here. That's in Matthew. The kingdom of God is here. God's authority. And like as he's speaking of it here, you think about um, uh, Jeremy as a sheriff's deputy. He's around here somewhere. Uh, if, if I'm out acting crazy in the middle of Main Street, I can get away with it for a while until Jeremy shows up. Right? Running around with my chainsaw. Whatever it is that I happen to be doing. The moment Jeremy gets there, like... The, the authorities have arrived, and he's going to say, put down your chainsaw. And if I don't, I'm probably going to play catch with him. It's going to be a really one-sided game. Um, meaning he'd shoot me, probably. I'm guessing. I don't know. Most people are lining up to do it. So, uh, like, the kingdom of God refers to his authority arriving. God's authority has arrived. Christ is there. God himself is there. And demons are, like, bound up and cast out and everything else because... Christ has authority to do so. Um, and so the kingdom of God is there. And these guys know that this is coming, but they look at the kingdom of God and they say, kingdom of God, devil. And actually Beelzebul, again, like we talked about this very briefly, I'm not going to get into it. This is um, a variant on the phrase that says, like the Lord of the manor or uh, the, the prince of this world or something like that. And so they're sort of playing up this idea that He's associated with this pagan God. And the wordplay there is important. It was more important last week. Um, and Jesus' response. So understanding his response. 
if Satan drives out Satan, <clears throat> he is divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? Meaning, I have authority. I'm using my authority against Satan. So, like, I can't be from Satan because I'm, I'd be fighting my own guys. That would be silly. Um, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So Jesus is saying, listen. Listen up, guys. There are guys back in Jerusalem who cast out demons who are on your team. Are they using evil spirits to do the same thing? Like, what are you measuring me by? Like, how do you know? Um, so then they will be your judges, meaning you side with these guys who do the same thing. You can't, you can't judge me. Like, this, this speaks against you. This demonstrates the fact that you are not coming at me with pure intent. But if it, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, meaning authority has arrived. Jeremy is there. Put your chainsaw down. Listen to me. Right? Like you have to stop at that point because authority is there. You can't have fun anymore. Uh, although maybe he'll join you. Who knows? Um, so understanding the text. We hit breaks again. I'm going to talk about this for a second. Um, Jesus' warning Right? Like, so he, he says, listen, the kingdom of God has arrived, and that's why this is happening. You guys accept it there. You have to accept it here. Otherwise, it's testifying against you because you're, like, obviously playing with a loaded deck, a dice. Loaded dice? Stack deck? I don't know. Anyway. Um, so now Jesus is about to offer a very ominous warning that is unique in scriptures. This is the only place, the only place that we are told that a sin is unforgivable, period. Everywhere else, you cannot find me a single spot in the scriptures where somebody goes and repents, truly repents, and God refuses to forgive them. Like, it happens nowhere else, which is part of the reason this is hard, right? And actually, I think it's hard in a way that teaches us stuff about salvation, and we're going to get to that. Um, So, Mark 3.22 is our text from last week that, that I brushed over quick. Truly, I tell you. People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, um, let that sink in for half a second, okay? Like, when else do you, again, like, that's not how we think of Jesus. That's not how we think of sin. That's not how we think of anything. This is... um, this is a big deal. It is also a big deal, by the way, since uh, at the very beginning, when John the Baptist is announcing that the Messiah is coming, he says, listen, one's coming after me who will baptize not with water, but with the spirit and fire. Um, and so like Jesus is the one coming, he's bringing the spirit. And these guys are saying, hey, your spirit is evil. The Holy Spirit's evil. Uh, and he's saying, you can't do this. It is not going to work. If you do it, you will not be forgiven. So in Matthew 12, we're going to jump into that. Whoever, this is the parallel passage. Matthew includes a little more text. Mark is a much more uh, compact presentation. Matthew is a lot more talky. He's the Eric of the Gospels. Um, only smart. Uh, whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. I'm going to do this slow because all of this counts and most people skip over it. All of this informs, all of this gives us a hint as to his meaning. But if you just skip over it and get right to the not forgiven part, you miss it. So whoever isn't with, is not with me is against me. Meaning these guys were standing up across from him and saying, 
hey, we're not on your team, guess what? They're in trouble. They're pushing against what he is doing. And so Christ is setting captives free. He's spreading the like, truth of the gospel. Like he, is, he is telling people about like, God's kingdom coming and about all of this stuff. And the response is, we are against you. And what you are doing, you're doing by evil spirits and wickedness. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And I pause again. So he announces it right after he says, you guys aren't on my team now. You've announced you're not on my team. You are straight up saying, you are my enemies. Because you're saying that when I do good work, when I set captives free, I do it by evil. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So he keeps going now, and it's easy to stop right there and say, oh my gosh, that's such a huge statement, no forgiveness. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. And every farmer knows this, right? If you've got wild oats in your field, do you have wheat? No, you've got something that is not good, like not good fruit bearing, I assume. I don't know. I've never tried to eat wild oats. I've heard about sowing them. I've not done it. Um, but the idea being like you can tell a tree by its fruit. You're going to know what it is. And if the tree is producing rotten fruit, then everything that's coming off it is rotten. And part of what he's saying there is, look at me, guys. I'm producing good fruit. I'm freeing people from, like, oppression from the devil and healing people and all of this other stuff. What does my tree look like? Whereas these guys are calling what I'm doing evil, what does their tree look like? You brood of vipers. Love that phrase. It actually means son of snakes, by the way. How can you who are evil say anything good? Really big deal. If you people are evil, nothing good comes out of your mouth, right? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So he's saying, you guys, you produce rotten fruit because you're rotten to the core. You're the sons of snakes. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings out good things out of the good stored up in him, but an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Um, Part of what he's saying there is it's easy to turn that into a workspace thing. Say the right thing forever or else, right? You can be forgiven for saying stupid stuff, right? What he's saying here is, listen, the words that are being spoken against the Holy Spirit, what's in the core of the guy? Rotten. And rotten is coming out of him. Nothing good is coming out of this guy because, like, he's full of wickedness. Whoever is against or isn't with me is against me. And so he's saying, listen, you guys are against me and you're rotten to the core. And what's coming out of your mouth is rottenness. There's an interesting little variant here, and I didn't touch on it. We'll see if I have it in the textual analysis in my next slide. I might. Uh, Yes, it is. So I will talk about it in a second. Um, So understanding what's going on here. First off, Jesus is talking to these guys. They know the signs. They don't care. They've blocked it out. They're blind. Right? You ever have your kid make a mess and they cover their eyes? There's no mess. You know, you're coming to spank them and they cover their eyes like you're not going to now. Right? Like it's not a very good protection. You wait, TJ. Um. The, like, the fact of the matter is these guys are covering their eyes, they're covering their ears, they're not listening, they refuse to listen, they refuse to hear, and so they are 
truly, utterly blind and deaf. They wouldn't and could not see the truth. And that's the problem that they have. They're speaking against the Holy Spirit because to the core of them, they are rotten. They, they exist in a place where they cannot receive the Spirit. Um, the word sin here means sinful acts, by the way. Uh, it's an unusual wording. It's sort of a variant phrase. And the variant phrase there, the idea is like what these guys are doing, their acts, meaning like all of the fruit they're producing, is sinful. They're bringing out sin because the tree and the fruit and all this other stuff. They are rotten to the core. And so if we look at this, what is the unforgivable sin? Well, it's hard to say for certain. Uh, First off, it is definitely the case that seeing the Spirit working through Jesus and saying that it's evil, don't do that. Got it? (laughs) Um, Actually, there's a great line I really wanted to – I went back and forth about whether or not I wanted to use it, and I I hunted it down and I printed it up. It's from two different places in uh, Paradise Lost. Invincible, abashed, the devil stood and felt how awful goodness is and saw virtue in her shape, how lovely, saw and pined for his loss. And in another spot it says, um, all good to me is lost, evil be thou my good, by thee at least, divided empire with kingdom, heaven's king I hold. What's he saying? So the devil has reached this point. He looks at things that are good. He looks at Adam and Eve and the good creation, and he sees that they are good and that they are righteous and they are holy. And he says, this is a terrible thing to me. And then afterwards he says, from here on out, everything that is good will be evil, and everything that is evil will be good. Perhaps if you're not uh, as familiar with Paradise Lost, you know the uh, line, to me, the Je- or from my point of view, the Jedi are evil. And the response is, then you are truly lost. That was Star Wars, y'all? <laughs> the only Star Wars fan? Y'all were more receptive of Milton than Star Wars. I, I, I forgot. <laughs> um, the idea is when you reach the point that in your heart you look at good and all you see is evil, you're in trouble. When you look at something that is holy or righteous, when you look at somebody serving, um, serving God's purpose and you're saying this must be an evil thing, you're broken to a point that there is no fixing it. Um, I think Martin Luther phrases uh, the blasphemy of the, spo- the Spirit as the continued and habitual denial, I'm sure it was in German, of the Spirit and his work in our lives. The idea here is you create such a condition in yourself that the Holy Spirit does not help you. And if that is the case, you are in trouble. Um, the cool thing about that is, by the way, you can't just do it accidentally, all right? So in your head, if you say, I said this once, I'm probably going to hell, like, no, you didn't, like, mess up the egg thing with the thief in the game. Like, the game's not rigged. God is trying, you know, you're, you're, you're supposed to win, right? Like, it's not a trap. It's not a, a, a trick. Finally, um, when we interpret Scripture, there are two Like, in in particular, in untying this knot, there are two principles that really help. One is to examine the context and let Scripture interpret Scripture as the other. In terms of the context, if we look at where it's at, um, we have people who are limiting Jesus because they're saying he's insane. we got people who are limiting Jesus saying he's evil. And we got people who are limiting Jesus saying he belongs to me. Right? And really what it all comes down to and what uh, what it works up as is, 
the blasphemy of the Spirit, to, to malign the Holy Spirit is something that is to attack the very foundation of Jesus' work and the gospel, to attack the Holy Spirit that empowered it, that he distributed. By his Holy Spirit, he acted. Like, it's to make everything wrong and broken. Um, it is a heart condition through and through. Uh, going to look at a couple of texts in order to look at what Scripture has to say on the topic. Uh, is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit mentioned anywhere else? So, maybe. Okay? And this is a disclaimer. Uh, there are two rather difficult texts, one in Hebrew and one in First John, that some people will attribute to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's a good read. That's my take. First uh, John 5, 16 to 18. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit, a, commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. There's a couple of cool things in that. First off, uh, a sin that leads to death, that must be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, It's probably actually the denial of the gospel. It's to say the gospel is not true and to step away from it, which leads to spiritual death. Does that make sense? Um, The Hebrews context... Uh, phrases it similarly, but also like sort of indicates that there's an out, like you can come back. Um, The sin that leads to death in this case is spiritual death. Uh, And then actually there's a phrase there, you know, like the one who is born of God protects him, meaning like we are protected. If we are in Christ, we are protected. The evil one can't touch us. We are protected from some of this nonsense. We're protected from getting too far out. Uh, We're sealed by the Spirit is one uh, text I read. Uh, identified like the Holy Spirit is in us we are sealed by him to the core we are filled with something good not rotten what else does scripture has to say about it well there's a clue in how forgiveness works and we're going to dig into that briefly this is the long part if we let it get out of hand uh, but I, I but we're going to touch on it because this is where it's really cool everything else up until this point is just a little bit of reassurance you cannot by this trivia moment, mess up your faith. You cannot break the game. It is not stacked against you. But if you understand how forgiveness works, it's even more awesome because there's an affirmation in this, a reassurance, an encouragement that is incredible. So we need, like, we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, like, to the sin that's in us, to soften our hearts so we can repent. Without the Holy Spirit, like, our natural inclination is going to be to fight God. We are like, you let me do what I want to do, and I'm going to do wrong. And the Holy Spirit prevents that. And we need the Holy Spirit in order to repent, in order to receive the gospel, in order to be born again. All of that is a product of the Holy Spirit. Without that, we're stuck. By the way, if you're in a place where you're like, oh, no, I'm going to hell now because I said something off the cuff, the fact that you even care is an indication that you're not going to hell. Got it? Because if you were truly broken in this way, you wouldn't care. You'd be proud of it, right? Um, the Holy Spirit withdraws. Like, if the Holy Spirit backs up off us, if he backs up and says, you can do what you want, um, then we can't repent. Like, we end up in this crazy place where we become more broken. And there are times when God does this with us. Um, 
in the case of declaring the good works of the Spirit evil, like in orienting ourselves into a life that looks at the Spirit and says, the Holy Spirit is evil and wicked and there's nothing good about him, we put ourselves in a, in a stuck place because then we don't have the Holy Spirit to save us. Um, finally, we never see a repentant man in the scriptures. Again, say it again. Cannot say it loud enough. Cannot say it seriously enough. You never encounter a place where a man is repentant and told you are out of luck. There's actually a spot where Paul tells the church in Corinthians, kick that guy out. The guy who is shacking up. Sorry, that was probably a crass phrasing. Who is cohabitating with his stepmother. And Paul's like, dude, what are you guys doing? Why would you put up with that? Like, not even the pagans do that. Kick that guy out of the church. If you read other writings from Paul, that guy comes back, is repentant and restored. And so, like, even, like, super gross stuff. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, we can all agree that's gross, right? Like, not okay. Big sin. Um, But sin is forgivable. And any repentant man who comes back is forgiven. And this is the way it works. Um, Isaiah 5, I didn't know where to stick this, but I do want to touch on it. Uh, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What's Isaiah saying? This is actually in a list of woes, meaning curse upon. And he's saying, listen, if you get to this point, you are in trouble and you're cursed. Um, Romans does it a little different. Uh, Paul, and this is, we're going to do a couple verses from Roman 1, not the whole thing. Uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, everyone who believes. By the way, everyone who believes, there is no asterisk, there is no side note, there is no everyone who believes who did not accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Uh, it was somebody else, uh, who helped me find that. That was... Mark, who helped me find that, that note, we don't ever see any of the, like, hey, you're forgiven if you believe in Christ. If you are in Christ, you're forgiven. We never see unless, except for those guys, you know, except for that guy in the back who, none of that. Um, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, meaning salvation came to Jewish people first, then to Greek people or like uh, Gentiles. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith this faith phrasing is kind of cool if you have faith you have not committed the unforgivable sin right like you got good fruit faith is like a fruit of salvation like it's a thing that comes out of you like you can't have faith if you are without the holy spirit Um, and we actually find that in the next part so we're going to jump ahead to 18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is the big part here. This is uh, the second half of this text. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them over God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship the served creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. If you keep going through Romans, every time, every time, every time something happens in this Roman 1 text where they're like, and then they rebelled some more, and so God handed them over. Where does that mean that God is like throwing them into the sin pile? Like he's got a sin machine and like, there you go. Like, that's what you want. No. There are times, have you ever done this with your kids where they say, this is what I want to do, and you know it's a mistake, and they ain't listening. And so you say, all right, go ahead and see how it works. I, I love that. I saw a video a while ago of a kid eating an onion, a little toddler with an onion, eating it like an apple. And the mom's like, don't, don't eat that. You don't want that. And she's like, I want it. No, 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 don't eat it. It's, you don't want it. No, I'm going to eat it. And she got mad. And she's like, all right, fine, eat it. Takes a bite and starts chewing and freezes up a second and like keeps chewing and then takes another bite and like tears are streaming down her face by the end of the video, but she never stopped eating the onion and she clearly wasn't happy, but she was gonna do things her way. And mom said, do what you want, but you ain't gonna like it. In this sense, what is happening is the Holy Spirit backs up and lets us do what we want sometimes. And it's the worst thing that can happen to you. If you decide everything that God is desiring to do in my life, the salvation that he sends through Christ, all of this is not for my good. It is all something I want to fight against. He'll let you. It's about the worst thing that I think has ever happened in my life is the times God said, well, do your thing, man. And then you wake up a year later and you're like, holy, what? I just messed up my life. How'd this happen? Right? Um, Romans 9, I didn't dig into this because it was too much. There's this point where we deal with the fact that when Pharaoh is facing down Moses and the plagues are happening, and you got to think Pharaoh is nuts at this point, right? Like, oh, look, the whole river turned to blood, and the whole country stinks now. But Pharaoh digs in. Well, forget that. We're not going to give in. But what it says is God hardened Pharaoh's heart over and over again. Like, even when the firstborn all die, like, we get to a point where God says, where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Does that mean God made him sin? No. It means that God just took a step back and said, do what you're going to do. And Pharaoh sinned. In terms of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, why is it unforgivable? Well, if the Holy Spirit backs up enough, you're in trouble. If the Holy Spirit hands you over to your own way, you're going to choose your own way, but it won't be God's. This is not a thing that believers need to worry about. Not really. To some degree, we do. Because everybody who's close to the text about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, well, it's the teachers, right? It's people who knew Jesus his whole life. It's religious folks. They're all really close to it because they're all in a position where they can. And when their arrogance and their pride takes over, God lets them do it. And their arrogance and pride destroys them. It turns them rotten through and through. It is a thing that is relatively easy for religious people to do, but it is not a thing that happens if you're in a place where you're like, yeah, I need to work at this. Yeah, maybe I'm struggling. Did God abandon me? No, that's the cool thing. The only way you know he's abandoned you is if you're rotten through and through. And then you won't care. You become so blind to your own sin that you won't see it. So what do we do with this? This is my unpacking, because I did have a couple of people approach me this week, and over the years, this is one of those questions that comes up over and over again. Wait a minute. Explain this unforgivable sin. Did I accidentally do this? Could I accidentally do this? 
where are the landmines at? I don't want to step on them. What do I not? What do I need to win the game? Like, none of that stuff applies to us, guys. We're in good shape because if we're in Christ, if we're pursuing Christ, if we desire to know Christ, His Spirit fills us and changes us. Um, so, in terms of us as believers, it's a profound reassurance. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you less. Can you wander off? Absolutely. Will he look for you? Yes. If you repent when the time comes, David said that even if I make my bed in hell, when the time comes, the Lord will come and get me. Oh, my goodness. You cannot outrun his grace for you. Can you throw it off? I Probably, yeah. That's a whole other conversation. But in this sense, you cannot accidentally lose the game. God desires us to know him. He desires us to pursue him, to love him, to be in relationship with him. These are all a part of the equation, but you can't blow it. Because if you could, you would, (laughs) right? It's like my keys are my wallet. I lose them every day. If my salvation was a thing I had to carry around, even if I tried, I would lose it. I'd be calling my wife, honey, where did I leave my salvation? The funny thing is that even when I think I've lost it, it was always with Christ and I just needed to go back to him. Repentance and forgiveness are a deep well. Like, you just can't drink it dry. You can't. And God is glorified through the showing of mercy, which is actually what this season is about. Like Lent, we're building up to Easter. God is, like, glorified by showing us mercy. Beautiful, amazing, wonderful, never-ending. And so knowing that, knowing what the unforgivable sin is, like puts us in a place where we can say, I'm bearing fruit. I know how forgiveness works, and I am forgiven. And when that voice pops up in the back of my head and says, are you really sure? I can back up and say, yeah, I'm sure. Understanding this idea also demonstrates the vastness of God's love, right? Um, and we do this once a month. I know we're a little long, uh, for which I apologize. But I'm not sorry because I think the sermon is important. I think what we're looking at is important. The vastness of God's love is best demonstrated in the Lord's Supper. When Jesus, knowing he would be betrayed, knowing he would go to the cross, knowing he would be nailed to a piece of wood and he would die slowly for men and women who cried out, crucify him. And I wasn't there, but my sin yells it louder than anybody in that crowd did. And so we take the Lord's Supper. We remember his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, his forgiveness that knows no bounds, his desire to bring us back. There's no trick. There's no trap. There's no way to lose the game the wrong way. And so we will pass around the elements. And as you take the bread, remember this is Christ's body broken for us. And we do this to remember he died for our sins.